Today's passage comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. The word of the Lord. Um, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you send your spirit to fill us, to guide us. Lord, we pray that you would use this voice in our ears to hear your word, to respond, to listen carefully, but, but to obey. So, Father, thank you for your grace. Pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. As Eric mentioned uh, during the retreat, we were asking the question, what is the church? What is it? And what is the church for? What's its purpose? Um, we ask these questions in the midst of a restart. Um, here we are coming back to church, learning again how to worship and do life together. Uh, through the pandemic, so many of us attend a church online, separate from one another. And I'm sure that maybe the thought came up, why, why church? Why come to this physical building? Why is it necessary that we worship together? In addition to the pandemic, uh, the church has been experiencing extraordinary internal and external pressures uh, from culture and ide ideology around us. Uh, I was reading an article from Christianity Today in, uh, from April uh, called The Splintering of the Evangelical Soul. The author there says new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, eth eth ethic, uh, ethnic, sorry, or political lines. Uh, rather, couples, families, friends, congregations, uh, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now divided over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. Views, I might add, of race or gender or politics or even vaccines. 
The author continues, in fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Um, so as we come back to church, as we think about restarting our ministries in our fellowship, uh, this question, what, what is the church? What is it for? As the church faces uh, external and internal pressures, where, where do we turn? Well, during the retreat, we, we turn to the book of Ephesians. Here, uh, Paul gives us one of the most full explanations of what the church is all about, how it was born and what it's for. Here, Paul gives us the problem, the solution, and the purpose for the church. So the problem, the solution, and then finally the purpose uh, for the church. We'll think about those uh, three points. Uh, here, in, in, I, I might briefly say the context of Ephesians. When Paul visited the city of Ephesus, he was there for three years during his third missionary journey. Um, all kinds of uh, religious, political, ideology, ideological, ethnic issues were going on in this city. So from the outside, there were pressures in the city of Ephesus. Uh, but in Acts 19, uh, 19 and 20, we read that after, uh, later in Paul's ministry, he actually swings back by Ephesus and talks to their leadership and warns them that there are wolves in their midst. So there are internal pressures going on in this church as well. I'm hoping to underline there that Paul ex Paul's experiences in Ephesus are very much like our own experiences today, the church experiencing pressures from the outside and potential divisions from the inside. So here, let's look at the problem. So he just read the passage. Uh, the problem is very clear here in chapter two. Uh, so you have to realize I'm a New Testament uh, professor at a local college and, and I wanna talk to you about all of Ephesians. So I'm resisting at every turn, making this like an hour-long lecture <laughs> because there's so much here in the book of Ephesians that relates to the church. I will do my best uh, for your good <laughs> and you, you don't want to get mad at me. Uh, so the problem here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, the problem is the issue of division. If, if you have your Bible or you have the uh, worship folder, look at the text there, especially in verse 14, Paul says that there is a dividing wall of hostility. Later in verse 17, Paul tells us that some uh, thought that they were near and others therefore thought that they were far. Paul is specifically talking about two ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And of course, there's a huge division between these two groups of people. Uh, but this was not just a division, not just an ethnic separation. It was literally hatred. The word that Paul uses there is the word echthros. It means hatred or to despise someone, to hate to the point of death. The Jews, on the one hand, had the law of God, and therefore they considered themselves set apart, holy, Special, God's chosen people. The law, of course, was God's gift to Israel. And instead of using God's gift in order to glorify God, Israel time and time again used that gift as a way of promoting a sense of self-importance. We're better than you because we have the law. 
and it grew into a sense of self-righteousness. On the other hand, the Gentiles, of course, we know they are lost. They're immoral. They're without God in the world. Paul says that they were called the uncircumcised, without Christ. He says the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were foreigners to God's covenant without hope and without God. It's these two groups of people uh, that are uh, at odds with each other. There's a division between them. There's hatred. Today, I think, similarly, people would take God's good gifts or characteristics in their lives and elevate that good gift to something that's ultimate and then maybe even use that good gift as a way of separating from others. At least we're not like those people, right? I have education. Implication, you don't. I live in an affluent community. Implication, you don't. My cultural practices or, or virtues are better than yours. I heard in the last couple of weeks an example of uh, cultural difference. There it was a Caucasian man who is getting married to a Hispanic uh, woman the day of the wedding. On the, the groom's side of the wedding, 15 minutes before the beginning of the wedding, everyone was there, seated and ready for the wedding. 15 minutes tick by, the wedding should be starting. Uh, 10 more minutes tick by, a few people kind of trickle in for the bride. 30 minutes later, the bride shows up. Everyone on the groom's side of the church are judging those on the other side. This is an important day. Time matters. Why aren't you here on time? Everyone on the other side of the church are thinking, it's all about the relationship anyway. When we show up, that's when the wedding starts because it's the people who matter. Are you feeling the tension culturally? One group judges another because of their ethnic, their cultural sensitivity, a sensibility. Now, no one in particular was in view with this illustration, though maybe you have experienced something like that. Cultural differences that might make us judge one another. Why don't you think this is important? Paul is talking about a kind of comparison and judgment that results in hostility, division, and hatred. And this is the root cause of all misunderstanding, conflict, division, and even war. The problem is a broken society where we think of ourselves as better than others, and this leads to division. This happens in the church as well. That opening article in Christianity Today puts its finger on this issue that this is even happening in the church. So what is God to do? How will God transform not only culture in the world, but how will God transform what's happening in the church? That leads us to the solution. If, if you have the text, look at verses 13 through 18. What is God going to do about this division, this hatred? Look at verse 13. But now, uh, I like how Paul uses that conjunction, but, throughout uh, uh, Ephesians. Something's wrong, but God. But God. He's the one 
that shows up and makes a difference. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man, a new humanity from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. Thanks. Check, check. Through which he put hostility to death. Verse 17. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. What is the solution? What is... Or how is God going to transform both the world and the church? He makes a new humanity, a new kind of people. This is called the church, this new humanity, this new corporate human. And God has done this through Jesus Christ, through his blood. Uh, notice, notice that in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, hatred died. Look, look again at verse 16. There at the very end, so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. Who died on the cross? It was Christ, right? We know that Jesus died on the cross. But Paul says that hostility, hatred itself was crucified. How, how is this possible? Uh, Paul in another letter, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 mentions how this is possible. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Jesus did not become sinful. Jesus himself never sinned, but he took sin on himself. Jesus took on all the hatred, all the violence, all the evil that human beings do to one another. And there on the cross, it's as if he took that fire of evil, of hatred and violence, and he extinguished it. And he rendered it lifeless, rendered it without power, taking the sting out of death. Hatred and death died in the death of Christ. With the result, what's the result of this? The result is that both those who are far away and those who are near are brought together. What's this near, far thing about? Paul, again, is using this to describe Gentiles and Jews. Those who are far away, the Gentiles. Or we might say, anyone who's not like us, right? <laughs> anyone who doesn't believe what I believe. Anybody who doesn't live like I live, they are far away. The Gentiles, of course, were clearly far off. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were on the outside. They were the prodigal son, right, who squanders the father's good inheritance, wakes up in a dumpster in Las Vegas the next morning figuring out what just happened to me. Those who are far away. They, of course, need to be saved, right? However, Paul is saying that even those who are near, those who think they are near, need 
restoration and salvation as well. Notice verse 15. Paul says there, he made of no effect the law consisting of commandments and expressed in regulations. You hear what Paul's putting his finger on there? The law, the thing that makes Jews feel special. It wasn't enough for them to be safe or to be near. In fact, what Christ has done is bringing both those who are far and those who are near to Jesus. The very things the Jews would have taken pride in, their special status, the gift of the law that God had given them, they were using as a crutch to make them feel like they are near to God. So let me ask you this. Maybe especially those of you this morning who are here, uh, you are a Christian, you have decided to follow Jesus. What in your life is a gift from God that perhaps you're tempted to take and transform into a reason to look down on other people? What is something like that in your life? Your family? Maybe the, the blessings that you've experienced in life, a successful career? Maybe education? We all do it. Uh, let, let me be a little transparent. I, I have a degree from St. Andrews University, one of, the, one of the, I think, best universities in the world. I've written several books. I've been invited to give lectures on the New Testament around the, the United States. And so, therefore, what can I learn from this simple preacher who is preaching God's word to me today? I'm not looking at you, Eric. I'm not looking at you. I'm not. I have to say this because up at the retreat, he, he was like, whoa, that was tough. What I'm trying to say is that it is so easy for me to think, man, I know so much more than this person preaching to me. But that's a way of me elevating a gift that God has given to the point where I think I'm doing it myself. That I'm near to God because of what I've done, but I need to hear God's word preached to me because I'm a sinner. I have no special standing before God. I need Christ just like anybody else. So what about in your life? What, what are you tempted maybe to raise a gift of God that you, you might you might take and transform as a reason to look down on others. Uh, how about another question? Do you think of yourself as near or as far? We often think that we are near, but again, like the parable of the prodigal son, like the older brother, the fact that we think we're near sometimes becomes a stumbling block so that we don't enter into the father's joy when the lost son returns. And it's out of a sense of self-righteousness that we are far from God by being very good. That was a mind-blowing idea to learn that you can run away from God by being bad, but you can also run away from God by being really good. That's called self-righteousness. Paul is here saying both. Both those who are near and those who are far, they both need reconciliation. In fact, Paul includes himself. Look at verse 13. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace. Paul's including himself in this, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new humanity. From the two, resulting in peace. Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. 
verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Both those who are near and those who are far need this restoration. This, this is part of the solution. What Christ has done, he has done for both those who are far and near. So God is changing the world. He's making all things new. He is restoring all that has been broken. And how? By making a new humanity in Christ. This is how the world changes. This is how culture is healed. This is how wars end. Christ making former enemies part of one new humanity. This is great news. This is earth-shattering stuff but it entails hard work. The fact that the new humanity, this new man, this new community that God has created, it's created by the work of Christ, uh, it means that we have a new identity. We have a new life. And there are characteristics of this new life. Let me share four. First, this new humanity, in this new humanity, we no longer compare and exclude, but we all remember that either near or far, we have all been enemies of God and we need rescue. The point here is that church community cannot grow if I think I am less sinful than someone else. In fact, the thing that draws us together is our common need for a savior. Don't forget what it's like to be lost if you are a Christian. Don't forget what it's like to live in the dark if you are following Jesus in the light. Don't forget what it's like to be trapped in your sins if you have been freed from them. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this uh, very important book called Life Together, and he's reflecting on the Christian community, and he thinks about this issue particularly. In fact, uh, if you have your reflection quotes, the very first page, uh, the very bottom uh, of the reflection quotes, the last one is the one I'm about to read. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? Again, if you follow Jesus, remember, it is not your righteousness that makes you pleasing to God, but the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus, our beautiful Savior. God is fully pleased with Christ on your behalf. So, Treat others, and this is to Christians, if you are following Jesus, so therefore treat others, current outsiders. Treat them with this gospel grace that you have received. It's the key characteristic of the new community. Comparison and self-righteous, thinking I'm better or less sinful than others, that's over. That is no longer a characteristic. Th think, think about how this idea of thinking we're better than others, think about how it affects community. Perhaps we could contrast two types of Christian church or Christian community. One kind of church is a behave, believe, belong kind of community. Another kind of community is a belong, believe, behave. I know I said the three words in the opposite order, and that's confusing. But on one hand, it's the behave, believe, belong. What's this community like? 
Well, first of all, you have to figure out our lingo, the kinds of words we use, and you have to come and figure out how we live. And you need to start living like we do. You need to get your behavior under control. Once you do that, then you can investigate what we believe as a community, and you too must start believing that. And only after you start behaving a certain way and you start believing a certain set of things, then and only then can you call yourself one of the group. The distinguishing factor between those who are belonging or not in this model is how you behave. And often those behaviors are defined negatively. What do you not do? Okay, I grew up in Kansas in a very, very conservative church. No drinking, no smoking, no card playing. You can go to the movies just as long as it's not rated R, right? So, so our, our community is defined by what we don't do. I would suggest this is like trying to play a game of football where everyone on the field are referees and everyone has a yellow flag and we're just throwing flags at each other. Oh, you went to a rated R movie. Oh, oh, you, you just, you know, drank too much or are you following what I'm saying? That, that community, that's really hard to score a touchdown when all you're doing is throwing flags at each other. That's a, a behave, believe, then you get to belong kind of community. How about another kind of community, though? How about the community that's a belong, believe, and behave kind of community? While registering a clear concern for behavior, this community opens up to those who, A, are not quite sure what they believe yet, and B, those who are not clear or consistent, perhaps, in their behavior. Now, that might sound messy. Yeah, sounds like the church, right? <laughs> that, sounds, that might sound messy. That might sound difficult. But I might po pose to you that often Jesus' own example is one where individuals were welcomed before they had either their behaviors or their beliefs totally in order. Is believing important? Yes, it is. Is living a life before Jesus in morality, the way he calls us, is that important? Absolutely. But Jesus himself reached out to people like the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4. People like the lepers, Luke 17. The blind, Mark 10. The demon possessed, Mark 5. The woman of the city who anointed Jesus' feet, Luke 7. Rather than, uh, sorry, rather than expecting these individuals to get their act together before they were welcome, Jesus invited them in. Not in an I will accept you just as you are with no change kind of attitude, but nonetheless, Jesus welcomed them. Paul himself says in Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. What kind of welcome have we received in Jesus? He has graciously given his life for us before we believed, before we even figured out we were sinful and needed rescue. Christ's love in his sacrifice, in his giving all for others, precedes our faith and our actions, our behaviors are a result of being welcomed, are a result of being loved. 
The new corporate humanity that Paul is talking about leads to the end of comparison and the end to that kind of exclusion. I want to be very careful and say what we believe about Jesus matters and how we live our lives matter. But those things come when we're welcomed and loved and restored by Christ. No more comparison and exclusion. Number two, we have a new identity. Our membership in this new corporate humanity means that we must reshuffle the layers of our identity. What what do I mean by that? Reshuffle the layers of our identity. Think about how we construct or think about our identity. Often uh, we think about our identity in terms of my gender, am I male or female, my culture, How have I grown up? My ethnicity? What is my ethnic makeup? What language do I speak? These are elements that go into our thinking about our identity. I am a male. I'm white. I grew up in the Midwest. I've been in California 14 years. I still am not used to palm trees. They look so strange to me. And the fact that people have pools in their backyard, uh, that just, that blows my mind. Only super wealthy people in Kansas have pools in their backyard. Uh, How do we construct our identity? We think about these types of things. But as we are a part of this new corporate humanity, this new thing that God is doing in Christ, in us, in the church, our identity now is primarily in Christ. Yes, I'm still male. Yes, I still have white skin. And those things are important. God has given those to me. But they no longer primarily shape my identity in terms of who I am. Please hear me. I'm not saying I'm I'm no longer male and cannot live my life as a male. But I need to think of myself primarily as a follower of Jesus. And the things that might make us different on one hand... Those are superseded by the thing that now makes us alike. We have both been restored by Christ, and we are brother and sister. What formed your identity before you met Christ? Think about that just for a second. How do you think about yourself? What elements are important as identity is formed? The the follow-on question is, how has or how should those issues of identity change when we meet Jesus. And again, I don't want to discount them. They're still there. They're still a part of us. They're still important. But the priority is reshuffled. Okay, uh, what, what does this look like in practice? Paul is arguing that the gospel transforms our identity such that we don't come together in this church because we necessarily share a language or share a culture or share an economic status or share a particular gender. You following what I'm saying? This is a place where people from different backgrounds and different languages come together because there is a new identity that draws us into one family. In fact, in fact, it is a witness to the world that very different people, even former enemies, might now come together and serve and love each other In the name of Jesus, that is what this new humanity is all about. This has implications. This has implications. One implication, let me share briefly, is this. I've been at Trinity for a a while, and I have had the opportunity to chat with people sometimes as they're leaving our church, leaving our community. 
And on more than one occasion, I've had a conversation with people who are leaving, and they will say, I've struggled with community. I think we have a very friendly church, but there are times where deeper community has a hard time growing. I remember chatting with one group, uh, one couple in particular. They said it was difficult for them to connect, and and they're hoping to find another church where they can connect. And I, I, this is going to sound mean, so I'm just mean. I asked them a question. I said, in, in your feeling disconnected from community, have you ever invited someone from church over to your house for a meal? And they said, no. And I said, what, do you, what makes you think that in a new church community you will experience any other experience of community? What I, what I was trying to say is the problem is going with you. That sounds so bad. But, but that's the truth. The problem is in me, not in the community. Uh, the community is a gift that God has given. Uh, and, and here, like, why do we come to this church? Do we, come, do, we, do we want to go to another church that's more like me, that has people more like me, that I might be comfortable in? What Paul is trying to get across is that that's actually not primarily what the church should be identified as. It's a group of people who have been transformed. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has some interesting things to say here about Christian community. He's talking about the church. He says that the church is not actually something we create. We actually don't attain or create Christian community in the church. No, Christian community in the church is a gift. It's something given to us by Jesus Christ. He says this, because God already has laid the only foundation for our community, because God has united us in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that life together with other Christians, not as those who make demands, but as those who thankfully receive. We thank God for what God has done for us. We thank God for giving us other Christians who live by God's call, forgiveness, and promise. Bonhoeffer continues, he says, Christian community is a gift of God to which we have no claim. Christian community is not an ideal that we have to realize, but rather it's a reality. It's a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. As a leader in the church, that gave me so much comfort. I have stressed so many nights worried about this congregation, praying for people, torn up that we're not growing like we should, et cetera, you know what I'm saying? And and this passage, I'm realizing, wait, no, Jesus has already made this community. He loves this community more than I do, and he's created this for us to enjoy and for us to participate in. It's already here. Just show up and be a part. God himself creates this new humanity, this church community, We are called to faithfully participate in it. In fact, I'm sorry, one more Bonhoeffer quote on this point. He's really good. Uh, uh, When we have an idealized view of the Christian community, this becomes a problem. This also is the first reflection quote. This one's tough to hear, but it's really helpful. Bonhoeffer says this. He warns every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up. Did you hear what he's saying? 
He's saying our idealized view of the Christian community needs to die. Why? So that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community, I'm guilty right here, okay, so I'm waving my hand. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Oh, man. I don't want to be a proud and pretentious Christian. I don't want to be a part of a proud and pretentious community where we're congratulating ourselves on what we believe or congratulating ourselves on how we're doing ministry. Those are important things. But that would be such a wrong view of what community should be. Those who dream of this idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God and by others and by themselves. Yeah, when we demand things of God, I think that's a good idea that we're, we're doing something wrong. This new humanity, therefore, leads to a new identity, a new identity as a body. Um, two, two more characteristics, briefly. Uh, third, this new identity should be expressed in our unity. We stressed that in our service already, singing about one faith, one Lord, one baptism, reading even from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul talks about our unity. Paul says that loving each other, we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. You get the idea? Paul is saying we need to be one. We need to be one together, unified. Why? Because God himself is one. The triune Father, Son, and Spirit is one. We then should be one in reflecting his oneness, one spirit, one baptism, one faith in Jesus that draws us together. But, number four, our unity does not lead to uniformity. Further in chapter four of Ephesians, Paul explains that God has given a variety of gifts, different gifts to his church, and these gifts are people. These different gifts of people they have different kinds of gifts. They're apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. All of these different gifts are used for one purpose, to equip the saints for ministry, to build up the body so that we're mature in Christ. Our unity doesn't mean that we have to be a uniformity. Right? We're united in Christ, but we're different in our makeup and where we come from and the skill set, the gifts that God has given so the problem of our hatred, the problem of division and hostility is resolved in Christ's work. Christ extinguishes our hatred in his death and makes a new humanity for God's glory. It's the church. But there's one question that remains. What does this new humanity do? What is the church for? If the problem was our division and the solution is Christ making us a new group, a new humanity with a new identity, then what do we do together? If you have your Bible, this is Ephesians chapter 3. Just listen. If you don't, uh, this is not in the bulletin. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, and then I'll skip to verses 6 through 10, Paul says this. By reading this, the letter, 
By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 8. Here's the mystery of Christ. This is the grace that was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is also that uh, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be made known through the church. There's the purpose of the church right there in verse 10. This mystery that Paul is talking about is just the mystery that how can far away people be brought near? How can Gentiles be a part of what God is doing? That's the mystery, and it's no longer a mystery because it's on display in Jesus. And now what is the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to make known the wisdom of God. It is, it is in the church that God displays his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 2.7. Uh, there are quotes there in the front of the bulletin from the Augsburg Confession and also from John Calvin's Institutes. In both of these quotes, uh, both reformers are saying, what is the church? Well, the, where you see the gospel preached rightly and where you see the sacraments administered well, that's the church. And, and here's the crazy thing, guys. This is the weird way God has chosen to show the world he's doing something new in the church. We do some weird things here. We preach, and we take communion, and we baptize. I would suggest as we try to witness to the goodness of God, witness to the fact that God has made a new community in our midst, that we don't veer away from these practices these countercultural things that we do are actually accomplishing the work of the church, witnessing to the world around us that we have discovered a savior. In fact, this is, this is the last point and the last illustration here. What does the church do? The church witnesses. The church points and basically says, there, that's the truth. There's the one who saved me. There's my beautiful Savior. There's the one without whom I would die. There's where truth can be found. Anyone can go to him. I'm pointing to him. And notice that like in the church, there's this phrase. The church is the theater of God's works. The church is the theater of God's works. What that means, I think, is that in the church, God is demonstrating the kind of thing he does. Rescuing broken people, restoring them to life. Our witness as a church sometimes will be in strength and confidence. Sometimes our witness as a church will be in brokenness and in great difficulty and in pain. Still witness. I think the church can even witness in its failure. I hope that's good news because... The burden is not on us. We come expecting, trusting, receiving the power that Jesus has given us in, re in restoration, in reconciliation. And our job is to faithfully witness. Uh, here's the last illustration. So 
Nicole and I, we come from Kansas. We, we like the Kansas Jayhawks. Nobody in California know who the Kansas Jayhawks are. They're their college basketball team. In 2008, the Kansas Jayhawks were playing the Memphis Tigers for the national championship. There were two seconds left in the game, and KU was down by three points. A guy named Mario Chambers, I still have it etched in my brain, shot a three-pointer with 2.7 seconds left on the clock. And everyone in our house at the time was asleep because our kids were little, and Nicole and I were like on the mantle fireplace watching the game, and we were watching the ball hover over the net. Is it going to go in? What's going to happen? The three-pointer, he made the three-pointer. Nicole and I, we start screaming bloody murder. Our kids think someone has died. No one in California is watching the game because they're flyover states. Who cares about these two states? Anyway, right? We were going crazy. We were rejoicing, and then there was overtime, and then we won. When you watch a sports team like that that you're invested in, do you have to tell yourself, oh, lock it, get excited? Oh, shout, a three-pointer just went through. I don't have to tell myself that. I delight in it because it's beautiful to me. Because I've invested in it, and it's already what I want to see. It's, I wear KU gear, and people are like, what's that mythical strange bird? I'm like, oh, it's the Jayhawks, man. I'm not afraid to be associated. I'm wearing, you know, it on my sleeve. I know it's a silly illustration. But when we come to this table, do, do we delight? Do, do we find our heart's deepest desires stirred? Because here, here is where we find our hope. When my body fails and I feel like I'm dying, he, here is where I find restoration to, you know, and hope to keep going. When I find myself broken off from other relationships, here is where I find healing. And I rejoice when the gospel is shared with other people and people are transformed. Why? Because that's my team and we win when we win together. And oh, when the church in Afghanistan faces incredible difficulty, I weep because those are my people. I don't know their names, but I know they love our beautiful Savior like I do. So I weep when the church is, is broken. And in America, where Christians are upset at each other because of cultural issues, we're brokenhearted because those are our people. Are you following that illustration? That, that's what we do as a church. We're witnessing to the goodness of God. And sometimes witnessing can be like watching a basketball game, enjoying, delighting in the thing that God is doing and just letting the world see it, letting the world in on the action. As we turn our attention here to the table, I pray that you find your delight in Jesus and that as we do that individually, we, we see this, this new humanity where there's no more exclusion, where there's a new identity, where there's a unity without uniformity, and all of this witnesses to the world of the truth of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please, Lord, please, would you do this work in our hearts today? Uh, in, in, in my words that are weak and feeble, I pray that they would fall to the ground, but I pray your words, the words from Ephesians, would stand in our minds, in our hearts, would convict us to be, whether near or far, that you know, convict us that we, we are now a part of this new humanity. Lord, help us as Trinity Church, help us to be a, a community uh, where, where we're living out the gospel together. 
even as we turn our attention to the table, Lord, restore us. Continue to make us new, uh, both individually and as a body. Thank you for your word. May it stay in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.